Are you wondering how you can learn more about food? Well, you're in the right place. This is the Chakula Podcast, brought to you by the Root to Food Initiative, a show that celebrates authentic Kenyan dishes and serves you hot conversations about food in Kenya from an economic, social, and political lens. Semanasi kwenye social media, at Root to Food on Instagram, at Root to Food on Twitter, and Root to Food on Facebook. And now, here's your host, Felistas Mwalia. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chakula Podcast, a show that comes to you every Friday. Today I'll be talking about something that is really close to me and to all of us, that is our right to food. I am fortunate and honored to host a constitutional lawyer, an expert, a law professor who also has a particular interest in human rights. She's also a director at Katiba Institute and she'll be joining us via Zoom. Karibu sana, Professor Jill Guy. I hope I have done justice to introduce you. <laughs> very well, thank you. Yes, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's rather cold, like everybody, and keeping ourselves to ourselves as much as possible. I must say, the weather makes one realize how blessed one is to be able to afford enough warm, nourishing food. Yeah, indeed, it is a blessing, not only to have warm food, but also to have nutritious food. She'll be sharing with us where Kenya is in establishing a robust legal framework for the right food and what she thinks on how the process should be done. Jill, since you have been in this corridors for a very long time, if I can say that, where do you think we are doing wrong? Where do you think we are in terms of realizing the human right to food in Kenya? Yes, first of all, let me begin by saying I feel we have not yet fully realized the possibilities of the whole idea of the right to food. In fact, maybe it's not just the right to food, but the other rights that we see in Article 43 of the Constitution, uh, the right to education, to highest uh, standard of health, to um, water and to social security and housing. All of them, I think, we haven't quite got our heads around the notion of these are rights. Jill, has there been any attempt in developing a legal framework for the right to food? And why has the process been really so slow? The reason as to why I'm saying the process has been so slow is in 2014, the Food Security Bill, which was one of the most significant attempts to establish the framework law for the right to adequate food in Kenya, was submitted in Parliament, specifically to the Senate, which was later transferred to the National Assembly. But until today, we've really not had anything about it or anything from it. Now, that's a difficulty. I can't say I have you know, followed this in detail. Let me say that there are a number of bills of different sorts that seem to make very, very slow progress through Parliament. And I think sometimes they need, you know, they don't get the support of government and um, maybe um, they don't get enough support in other quarters in Parliament either. But I, I wouldn't like to, without having it in front of me, I wouldn't like to, um, to say um, exactly what the problem is. Could I add a point also, though? Uh, last night, I finished reading Irungu Houghton's book on the Constitution. It's called Dialogue and Dissent, A Constitution in Search of a Country. And his last chapter, his second to last chapter, is really about people who have found inspiration and support in the Constitution. And so how, despite the problems that he outlined in his biggest chapter, how people are actually making use of the Constitution. It's noticeable that many of the things that they're relying on are things like the right to assembly, association, freedom of expression, and Article 1, which is on the sovereign people. I think we need more people who are finding their inspiration uh, in Article 43. 
in the uh, rights to food and housing and water and uh, education, social security. And then perhaps uh, the constitution will have a bigger impact on Kenyan society. Clearly, it seems that we have not yet fully realized the possibilities of the whole idea of the right to food. But we still have a constitution which clearly and explicitly talks about the right to food. In a nutshell, can you kindly share with us the genesis of the right to food as espoused in the constitution and are we really on track to achieving it? Let me begin with where it comes from. Um, most people would say that the idea of a right to food is first expressed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. This is still a wonderful document because it really sets out all an outline of, of most of the rights that we now recognize. That document, which is a United Nations document, says everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services. You will notice that there's one problem with that document. It's rather old-fashioned in some ways, and it talks about him and his, whereas our constitution never does that. And then that similar provision appeared in the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights in 1966, which Kenya has been a party to for a long time. And there, there is a little more detail. It says it includes to improve methods of production, conservation and distribution of food by making full use of technical and scientific knowledge, by disseminating knowledge of the principles of nutrition and by developing or reforming agrarian systems in such a way as to achieve the most efficient development and utilization of natural resources. So you can see the the idea is they're trying to explain what it actually means. Let's come to our constitution. Our constitution says you have a right to be free from hunger, you have a right to adequate food, and you have a right to food of acceptable quality. Um, We took, um, to some extent, from South Africa's constitution. That constitution talks of sufficient food and water. I think ours is a bit better, it's a bit fuller. Then I think we have to understand that you don't just read that little bit of Article 43. You have to look at the whole of what we call the Bill of Rights, um, Chapter 4 of the Constitution. If I can say a little bit more about that. First of all, it explains that rights are a framework for government decision-making and policy-making. So government must always have them, including food, in mind. You know, when they're making plans, they should always be saying to themselves, what does, what are the implications of what we're discussing and what we're deciding for people's rights, including food? Then the state must do what is needed to fulfill this right and others uh, in Article 43. But it doesn't say you have to fulfill them overnight. It says they have to be done progressively. Some people don't like that. They think it's an excuse for not doing anything. But the courts have been very clear about that. Progressively means you start now and you keep going. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you can't, you don't do anything yet. And then, of course, one of the things that prevents a sort of miracle overnight is money. But if a government is challenged in, uh, in court and saying you haven't done enough about the right to food, and they say we don't have money, it's not our job to show that the government has the money. It is the government's job to show that they don't have the resources. And the constitution is very clear that they are expected to give priority to those people most in need. And then what again to repeat is they're not expected to start feeding us all. Um, First of all, they have to respect our rights to food. That is, they mustn't do things which reduce our access to food and the quality of food and 
the quantity of food we get. Secondly, they need to protect us against what other people might do uh, to, to limit our rights to food uh, by using the criminal law, by using in, by passing environmental law which protects um, food and so on. Then they should promote the right, which is, in other words, educating people about the right to food or through their use of taxation, for example. They should be encouraging the production of nutritious food and then they should fulfill the right. And that, of course, would come particularly when perhaps we have a drought or something and they should have programs actually to feed people. So this is a sort of overview of, of what the right to food actually means in the Constitution. You mentioned something to do that. Our Constitution is really brief when it comes to the right to food. Does it mean... Except that I just spelt out, I just spelt out, sorry, I just spelt out the fact that in fact it isn't only if you just read a little bit of Article 43. But if you read the rest of Article of Chapter 4 or the other relevant provisions of Chapter 4, then you realize that actually it says quite a lot about the right to food and other Clearly from our constitution, the right to food is well captured. And in the context of devolution, what is really required to make the national and county government accountable in this regard? Let me say something about accountability. Mm -hmm. This is quite a theme with me. Accountability only comes when people demand accountability. No government is going to say, here we are, we're accountable, we're going to tell you everything you need to know. No, you, you need to demand. And of course, before you demand, you need to believe in it. Maybe that's been a problem with the right to food. Yeah. Certainly a lot of people almost laughed at the idea when the constitution was being made. How can the constitution say the government must feed everybody? Perhaps it was even more laughable to some people than the idea of a right to education or a right to health or a right to housing. In fact, constitutions, some constitutions have had a right to education for a long time. The Mexican constitution perhaps was the first one in 1917 a long time ago. I think at the moment people don't really think of it as a right to food. And when I say people, I mean governments and politicians as well as people. A right creates a special a special possibility of accountability. If you, um, it's more than just a political commitment. Um, so the answer to your question is similar to the answer I would give to about much of the constitution. It's more likely to work. Accountability is more likely to exist when the people want it to work, when they insist on it working. Now, let me say the Human Rights Commission, uh, commissions, we have uh, two of those, really, the uh, National Commission on Human Rights and the National Gender and Equality Commission. Uh, and those can take action without being asked by anybody. They can carry out their own investigations and they can go to court. But their enforcement powers are limited and the courts need someone. You know, courts can't start to work unless somebody brings a case. It could be the Human Rights Commission, but it could be other people, citizens and organizations. Okay, so still within the context of devolution, under the first schedule of the Kenyan Constitution on distribution of functions between national and the county governments, the county government has a function of agriculture. Do you find this problematic given that the responsibility to progressively realize the right to adequate food lies with the national government? It actually doesn't just lie with the national government. The Constitution constantly says the state has to do things, right? We have the, we have the rights and the state very often has the duties. Sometimes, of course, we should also recognize that we have duties too. Our human rights are not just a matter between us and the state, but between us and fellow citizens and organizations. However, back to your point, 
when you say the responsibility, the responsibility is that of the state and the county governments are part of the state. There is one difference, it's an important difference, I think. The national government makes international treaties. So, for example, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is made, is signed by the national government. And these days, a, a new international treaty would be approved by the national parliament. Um, so, in terms of who has the international legal responsibility, yes, it's the, it's the national government. Mm -hmm. But internally, within Kenya, counties are part of the state and they also have responsibilities, duties, legal duties. Schedule 4 of the Constitution, yes, it talks about the powers and functions of counties. Um, and the word powers, lawyers would often tell you, well, if you have a power, it means you can do it, but you don't have to do it. Um, but Chapter 4, it has a very interesting effect on that. It turns something which is called a power into a duty. Um, so counties, as a state, have the duty to respect and promote and fulfil Article 43. And uh, because to the extent that they have the power to do so and they choose not to do so, they're in breach of their duty and can be held accountable. See what I mean? So it's a sort of transformation by Chapter 4 of things that the counties may think of as a power into a duty to do it if it is important for the fulfillment of the rights of the people in their county. You've answered that really explicitly and trying to link back what you have talked about at the previous question about people perceived the right to education more compared to the right to food and uh, basically from observing what has been happening the right to education has been partially achieved so is the right to health why are we still struggling in putting in place policy and legal instruments to achieve the right to food yeah yes i think maybe it's because people are used to the idea of government providing schools and clinics so they expect government to do that. Whereas you know, the idea of the government having some sort of legal responsibility, constitutional responsibility for food is something new. Uh, and we haven't quite come to terms with this right. Mind you, I bet there are plenty of people in Kenya in places where they don't get food or have enough food who probably have a fairly shrewd idea of what ought to be done and what a right to food would mean. But um, for many of us, we haven't quite, as I say, got our heads around this particular notion. But you know, even with, um, with education and health, is it that we think of them as a right? Or at least does government think of them as our right? I think government thinks of them as something that is a, is a sort of political responsibility. Yeah. And the trouble with that is that political responsibilities can be easily looked at as, oh, well, this is the government being kind to us. This is the, obviously the government being politically sensitive to us, but not as the government recognising that we have a right and they have a duty. And how should this process be done? Have there been any attempts by the government, civil society or the private sector? Well, of course, the obvious answer is um, food security is one of the president's big four. And it's an important contribution. But I do want to make just a couple of comments really about it and, and say that I, I don't look at it as um, quite the same, however good idea I think it is, as, a, as an acceptance of a duty. First of all, it is a political undertaking, right? And let me expand what I, on what I said a moment ago. Um, I think that if a single person starves in this country to death or in any country, maybe you couldn't say there was a breach of constitution, a breach of that person's right. But if a 
significant number of people starve. If that is foreseeable, and if nothing is done about it, and when something could be done about it, then there's a violation of the right to food, a violation of the Constitution. And I think this is what's important about being a right, right? It's it's something that you somebody has a right to and somebody has a duty, and not to fulfill that duty is a violation of the right. And then the second thing about the Big Four plan is that it's a long-term thing. It's about improvement of agriculture over a long period of time. But what about people who are starving now? And now is real, isn't it? Or people who are undernourished. There are huge numbers of people who are undernourished. Or people who don't know what makes a good diet, because that's under the the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, as I read. Actually educating people about what is a good diet and the best way especially to feed their children is part of the government responsibility. So that's one aspect, right? It's what government has done. Secondly, of course, as a lawyer, I would tend to think about going to court. You know, do people go to court about the right? And there have been a few cases, but they so far haven't had a very big impact. And they haven't been on the whole cases which make the right to food central. In one, uh, the Consumer Federation of Kenya tried. It wanted a declaration from the High Court that keeping fuel prices high caused high food prices and thus violated Article 43. It's, it's not a bad argument on the face of it and something that people have been talking about now and the problem of taxing fuel and therefore actually taxing food. Um, but it was a, perhaps an early case and the judge said he needed to do more than just come to court and say this. And he said, and it's interesting, it is not enough to make bare statements with regard to the violation of rights without seriously addressing oneself to the manner in which the violations have occurred and the reasonableness or otherwise of the measures taken to avert or ameliorate their impact. In other words, you don't just say there's a problem, you have to say government didn't do this, which it could have done, it should have done, or it did this, which it shouldn't have done, and so on. You've got to prove that there was a failure on the part of government. A number of other cases have used the right of food, the right to food, as a sort of add-on, particularly a number of evictions. People have been kicked out of their homes. This is a violation of the right to housing. That right to housing would usually be enough. But there's a tendency for lawyers to want to add on and add on and add on. So, um, you know, you say it's a violation of the right to housing and education and food. Um, We haven't really made it a, a central concern of the cases. There was one case in which traders were evicted and the court said uh, did actually focus particularly on the fact that this made it difficult for them just to live and just to um, you know just to feed their families let me add that when I say we could do more I often have in mind in cases there is an organization in India called the right to food campaign um, it's been going since about the year 2000 and it began with a court case And that court case went on for years and years and years, constantly raising issues about the government's own failure to carry out its own policies and programs for uh, feeding the starving, for uh, providing nutritious food, school meals and all that sort of thing. Really tackling uh, government's obligation to do positive things uh, to improve the, um, the food situation. And I think this is what we haven't yet done in our court cases, the need for government to do positive things to improve the food situation. As we wind down, do you have any wise words 
for the listeners? I think as to believe in it, I think as a, as the right, not just your own right, but the right of other people. I think this is what's really important in something like this. These are, you can't just enjoy the right to food all by yourself, can you? Uh, it's it's got to be something which is uh, functions for at least your community and for society. So we really need to believe in, in the rights um, and be prepared to, to make an effort, think about how those rights ought to be fulfilled. I will listen to you like the whole day, Professor, but we've come to the end of the show. Thank you so much for your insights. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. I want to say a big thank you to everyone who has listened to the podcast all through till the end and a big thank you to my guest, Professor Jill Guy. If you want to find out more about the Root to Food Initiative, check out our website, www.rootofood.org. I put the link in the show notes below. You can also join us in championing food change by becoming a member of the Root to Food Alliance using the same link that I've shared on our website. You can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud at Chakula Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, follow, like, and share so that you don't miss out on new episodes. I'm your host, Feli, and I'll catch you next week on Friday.